Um, Tennessee, they are sweet people down there. There is something to be said for Southern hospitality, but there's something to be said for coming home as well. So, um, so we're glad to be with you. Um, uh, today and next week, I'm going to be sharing with you uh, um, out of the same passage and um, talking, on, talking about the house that Jesus built. The house that Jesus built. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Yeah. I really don't know where all we're going to go today, or I do, but how how far we'll go, and I may have to, I don't know, we'll just follow follow the Lord here. Um, Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse... 13, it will be on the screen here. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. This is a passage that has aroused a lot of debate, that has brought on a lot of controversy down through the years. But I just want to begin to break it down and and dissect it with you for a little while this morning. And some of you may have read this and just wondered, what exactly was Jesus talking about? You see, at this time in Jesus' ministry, his ministry was about ready to come to a close. He didn't have too, too many more days here on earth. Pretty soon they were going to be going to Jerusalem where he would be offered up as a sacrifice. And it very well just could be that Jesus took this time with his disciples and perhaps he wanted to know just exactly who got it. Uh, for three and a half years, he's been preaching. He's been trying to show them. And, and now is the time he needs to know for sure just who is with him. Took them to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And it's predominantly a non-Jewish region. So Jesus was probably able to have some secluded time with his disciples And so he begins to ask the real question, but he asks it, he begins in a nonchalant way. Again, he says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, in all actuality, they were, the people who were saying these things about Jesus, they were really giving him a compliment. For you see, John the Baptist, his, 
His stature, so to speak, was growing by the day ever since he became a martyr. And many people considered him a great prophet while he was alive. And when he was a martyr, his status rose even more. And many people other than Herod Antipas thought that perhaps he had come back and come back to life. Uh, There were many people that really elevated the status of John the Baptist as a great prophet. And here is Jesus. Maybe he's John the Baptist. Some said, well, he's Elijah. Elijah is considered to be one of the greatest of the prophets, the prince of prophets, so to speak. He was a forerunner. Malachi talks about how uh, Elijah will be a forerunner to the Messiah, to the Christ coming. Elijah was a great, great prophet. So much so that many of the Jews today in their circles, they believe that um, uh, Elijah will come back to life. He will come back, and when he comes back, he will be announcing the soon return of the Messiah. And in many of the Jewish circles, when they sit down to have dinner, they leave an empty chair at the dinner table, symbolizing the, the, the expecting uh, coming of Elijah, because when he comes, the Messiah is soon to come. Some thought Jesus was Elijah. Some thought that he may have been Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived around the time that King Nebuchadnezzar came and they took uh, over Jerusalem. And whenever Jerusalem fell and the Jews went to exile in 586 B.C., many people believed that Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and he took the altar of incense and he hid it so that the pagan country of Babylon would not take it. And many of the Jews today believe that when the Messiah is ready to come back, Jeremiah is going to come back and and reinstitute the ark and reinstitute the altar of incense. And so when he comes back, the Messiah is just around the corner. And so you can see when they called Jesus John the Baptist and Elijah and Jeremiah, they were really paying him a compliment. But that was not what Jesus was trying to get at. So Jesus heard that, and then he said, But who do you say that I am? That passage has always intrigued me. He made it personal, didn't he? He looked at the twelve disciples, and he said, Okay, I hear what everyone else is saying about me, but hey. And he looked them in the eyes, and he said, But who do you say that I am? It was kind of put up or shut up time for the 12 disciples. I can imagine maybe it just got a little awkward in that circle. I mean, I don't know. I think he's, I'm pretty sure, but I don't know. Do I say it? I mean, and here we see Peter. Peter stepping out of the boat again. And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, there comes a moment in everyone's life when Jesus needs to be personal. To where he needs to be personal in your life. You see, Jesus just said, Peter, it's good that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You see, that's just a mental ascent. 
That's just intellectual assent. There are many people, millions and millions of people in the world today who believe that Jesus lived. They have that mental assent. Flesh and blood has revealed this to them. But at this moment in time, I believe that Peter couldn't help but exclaim, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, because his heart was about ready to burst. You see, there comes a point in all of our lives when Jesus needs to be personal. He needs to be personal. And at that time, that's what was taking place. Just wanted to lay out the background, uh, lay out the setting at the time. I've often told my kids, Parker, Jenna, I've even told Jess this, you can't ride on your mom and dad's coattails to heaven. You can't. You've got to make Jesus your own. There comes a point in your life to where it's, it's no longer exactly what we're teaching you or what we're showing you or what we're modeling you. It's got to be your own. And I guess if there is a theme to the message today, it's got to be personal. Jesus needs to be yours. That day, Peter made Jesus And then Jesus says something that has become one of the most controversial statements known to man. I want to again look at verse 18. And Jesus, after Peter had said this, said, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. If you'll come back next week, I'm going to be talking about the last part of that. And the gates of Hades will not prevail. I'm excited to share that message. But as I was working on this this week, God kind of took me in this direction. You see, it's out of this verse that the Roman Catholic Church was born, right? Now, I typically do not refer to specific churches as such, but... I want to refer to this in order to make you aware of some of the background. Not judging anyone's souls, but just to educate and to give you some information. And and really, I'll be curious after a church, my sister and brother-in-law are here, and Matthew, my nephew, are here, and uh, Ty, my brother-in-law, he came out of Catholicism. So, Ty, make sure that I'm on point today with some of this stuff. But... um, It's almost fascinating where they have taken this passage. The Roman Catholic Church is the largest Christian church. It has over 1.25 billion members to its membership. Now just listen to this. The Roman Catholic Church, they teach that they are the one and true church founded by Jesus Christ. They claim that Peter, off of this verse... They claim that Peter was the first bishop of Rome and that he alone was given the keys to admit or exclude people from heaven. Some of you may not have known some of this. You need to hear it. He also, Peter also has the power to free or not to free people from their sins. The power and authority given to Peter by God is subsequently handed down to every bishop and to every pope that has followed Peter. 
out of this verse, the concept of the infallibility of the church was born. In other words, it was not considered possible for the Roman Catholic Church to be wrong as it pertains to their judgments and decisions towards the soul of man. And then they also come up with the supremacy of the Pope. I want to read you something that the early Catholic writers wrote about the Pope and the status that had put him on. You see, early in the church days, it was you had your elders and your deacons and your bishops, but at some point in time, towards the end of the first century, early to the uh, second century, it began to be elders and deacons and a bishop, singular. They began to exalt man and put him above the rest. And then that bishop then led to this. Listen to their conclusions on the Pope. They say of the Pope, he is not simply man, but as it were, God. Placed on the very summit of dignity, he is truly greater than all and the greatest of all. Called most holy, divine monarch, supreme emperor and king of kings. King of heaven, of earth and of hell. Above heavenly, terrestrial and infernal things. He is above angels and is their superior. Angels could be judged and excommunicated by the Pope. The Pope is, as it were, God on earth. The only prince of the faithful in Christ, the greatest king of all kings, all power in heaven and earth is given to the Pope. The Pope is greater than man. He judges all persons and is judged by no one. He opens heaven, sends the guilty to hell, and the Pope is the head of all heads. Scary. Scary. Even though the Roman Catholic Church believes in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they do not promote a personal salvation, one-on-one experience with Jesus Christ. They advocate the practice of going to the Catholic priest and he is able to intercede on your behalf and take your sins and then he approaches the Father on your behalf. But you see, the very foundation of the Roman Catholic Church rests solely on this verse. You remove this Jenga block and the entire substantiation of the church falls apart. Now, if we look at this passage at just a quick glance, it may seem that Jesus is indeed elevating Peter to a higher status, right? But let's break this down. You see, the Roman Catholic Church has risen in large part because they see the name Peter in this passage and the word rock as one and the same. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. They see Peter and rock the same person. However, a closer look reveals something different. Peter, the Greek word for Peter is Petros, which means a small piece of rock or a little stone. Next, when Jesus chooses the word to describe uh, upon those who will be a part of the church, he uses the word rock, and that is Petrus, which means rock. It's almost as if 
It's almost as if Jesus said that, um, now if he would have said, you are Peter, and upon this Peter I will build my church, then perhaps there would have been a necessity for an elevated status. But could it just be, and I ask you this morning, could it just be that what Jesus was describing in that passage was the qualifications for those who would make up his new creation, the church? that those qualifications will be found in something or someone other than Peter. I need to move quickly, but there are a number of passages. I'm probably getting out of battery, aren't I? I should have checked that before. All right, just time out here. there? I'm with you. To save time, I want to just... Did you take my clicker? Stinker. All right. We'll be talking about that this week. Just kidding. I want to run through these There are a number of passages that refer to someone other than Peter being the rock. 2 Samuel 22, 2 and 3. The God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and refuge. Deuteronomy 32, 4 and 31. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. For their rock is not like our rock. Psalm 18, 1 and 2 and 33. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. For who is God except the Lord and who is a rock except our God? In 1 Corinthians 10.4, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Jesus. That rock was Christ. So the question this morning, in this passage, we need to settle the question, who or what is the rock? Church, the rock is God and Jesus Christ. Amen? He is our rock. He is our fortress. Amen. So we look at this passage. What exactly was Jesus trying to say in this passage? Peter had just confessed that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. This verse tells us that anyone who confesses and believes in him, believes in who? Believes in the rock, as Peter just did, would be those who make up the church. Jesus was not placing Peter in a place of authority. He was not elevating Peter as the first bishop or the first pope. If you were to keep on reading, if this was indeed an elevated status, in just a few verses after this, 
Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Satan, get behind me. He was not elevating Peter to an elevated status. He was simply stating that anyone who showed the same faith in him would make up the church of the living God. The church and those who would make up the church is further explained. Turn there with me in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to look at this with me. 1 Peter chapter 2. The church and those who would make up the church. We can see this here. 1 Peter 2, starting with verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. He's talking about Jesus there. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief corner stone. You see, everyone who believes as Peter that Jesus is the Christ, this person becomes another stone in the building of the church. One stone after another, one soul after another. The church would be a spiritual house made up of one stone, one soul at a time. And this is where I come back to, you see, it has to be personal. It has to be personal. But make no mistake, Peter is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is head of the church. Jesus Christ is our chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ is our main foundation. It tells us, here in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. 1 Corinthians three eleven. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. something that I probably need to take a lesson from is every time I preach a message to where I just inundate you all with scripture, I get more comments than any other time. Why is that? Because God's word is powerful. A lot more powerful than Brock's words. It can be backed up by God's word and it, it speaks. There is no man who can take the supremacy of our Lord. No man. You don't have to turn here, but I want to I want to read you a passage out of Matthew twenty three eight. Speaking of a practice of the Catholic Church. It's Matthew twenty three, eight through twelve, if you wanted to write this down. Matthew twenty three, eight through twelve. It says this. But you 
Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I ran into a a preacher, a pastor down in Tennessee at the camp meeting that I was at. And we were, and and this, this reminded me of this, we were talking about our salvation experiences and and, uh, she told me of hers that that she used to be Catholic. And her entire life, she was just used to approaching the priest and calling them Father Mark or Father Joe or or Father so-and-so. Her name was Linda, Pastor Linda. And she got gloriously saved. And what I find very interesting about this is not long after she had gotten saved, she had never heard of this verse before. She didn't even know it was in there. She got on an elevator where there was a priest that she knew. And she said that she went to go say hello to him, where she normally would say hello, Father Mark or Father Joe. And she said she got out hello, and she couldn't say those words. Isn't that interesting? Why is that? She said, it, she said I, it was awkward. She says, I kind of fumbled with my words, and I didn't know what to call him. <laughs> she said, I just, I could not say those words. She had never heard that verse before. I'll tell you what I think it was. Jesus became personal in her life. And he radically changed her life. And she knew, and deep in her spirit, deep in her heart, she knew that she now only had one Father, one Lord, one Master. And the Spirit of God will not allow her to say that. How many churches today look good, seemingly function well, but they've removed Jesus as their chief cornerstone. No longer look to the Word of God as their sole source of truth. Whatever seems right to man. I'm going to share this now. I may share it again next week. I was going to share it in the message next week, but I'll share it now. I heard that, I don't know how long ago it was, a couple years ago, but at the uh, Presbyterian National Conference in America, the subject of homosexuality came up. And they voted to adopt it into their practices, to, to allow it to be an acceptable lifestyle, not just for their members, but for those who would get behind the pulpit. But what's interesting is they did not give any scriptural backing for their decision. They did not give any philosophical reasoning as to why they came to that conclusion. This is what they said at that conference. They said, if we are going to survive in today's day and age, we have to accept this. In that situation, Jesus is no longer the chief cornerstone. They are no longer looking to him as the one true foundation. And that's what happens whenever we cease to do that. Oh, church of God, Bars Mill, 
Sugar Creek, may we never forget who is our chief cornerstone. There's a lot of things that we can have conversations about, but the day that you find me preaching on something that is not in the Word, please call me on the carpet for it. Please. He must be our chief cornerstone. Some of you may be saying, well, Pastor Brock, he really talked to Peter on this occasion. What exactly was Peter's role in this? I just say simply that Peter was the first person to make the leap of faith and see in Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It's as if Jesus said this, Peter, you are the first person to fully grasp who I am. You are therefore the first stone of the church that I am building. Wow, what a moment that was. <laughs> right there, right there. Uh, you know, a lot of the scholars, and I would have to agree, believe that the church exploded on the day of Pentecost, okay? But I believe that the infancy happened right there in Caesarea Philippi when he looked at those disciples and he made it personal. And Peter knew he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's somebody in here this morning, you need to make Jesus personal. You need to come to the same conclusion that Peter did. And Jesus and Peter had a connection. And Jesus said, Peter, you get it. You get it. It's upon the rock. I am the rock. It's upon your faith, your admission that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter became one of those first stones. You see, the church is made up of those who ABC its salvation. A, the church is made up of those who first must admit that they need a Savior, who admit that they are sinners. B, those who believe, those who confess that Jesus is Lord and that, that God raised Jesus from the dead, they must believe that. And then C, you have to confess your sins, and you have to confess and you have to turn from your old way of life. It's called salvation. It's called making Jesus personal. Those are the ones and the only ones who make up the church. You want to be a part of the church, big C? It needs to be personal. And Jesus is asking, he's asking all of us today, who do you say that I am? As you know, there are many churches, not all of them, but there are many churches today require that you join their church by becoming a member or by signing a roster or by attending special classes. If you don't, then you can never officially be a part of their church nor serve in various ways or capacities. Now, I need to give you a caveat statement here. I've spent... A number of years of my life in churches like that. I spent a number of years in a good old-fashioned holiness Methodist church. It's where I had my sanctifying experience. I then spent many years in a holiness preaching Nazarene movement. And some of those churches have that. But the churches that I was a part of that, they never made that the main issue. They always preached Jesus Christ. There are churches out there like that, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. 
they did not want that to take precedence over you becoming a born-again believer. But back in the late 1800s, the landscape of the Protestant church was greatly defined by restrictions, rules and regulations that did more to keep people out of the church than it did to keep them in the church. Man-made dogmas, creeds, rules and regulations, stipulations that made it difficult for one to even feel like they were part of the church. But 134 years ago, some of you have been coming here for many, many years. And you may not really know the history of the church of God. And this whole discussion, this verse 18, is really a springboard as to why we as the church of God feel the way we do about the church. So let me just fill you in. 134 years ago, on October 1st, 1881, a group of about 30 people met in a church in the little village of Beaver Dam, Indiana. And one of the people that was there was a man named D.S. Warner. D.S. Warner rose to his feet and asked if he could speak to the group. D.S. Warner had served in the Civil War, but in 1865 he had gotten saved. And at the time of 1881, he was a pastor and he was the editor of a religious newspaper. Some of you may have heard it called the Gospel Trumpet. (laughs) In that meeting that day, all eyes in the room turned to Warner as he asked for permission to speak. His exact words were not written down, but we know that he saw that Christians had been divided into too many different church groups. He said this, why should there be so many different churches? Why must we divide ourselves into Baptists or Presbyterians or Lutherans or all the others? Why can we not live together as brothers and sisters in one great church family under God? You see, Warner believed that it was possible for Christians to live together in the unity that comes when God's love is present in the hearts of his people. At the Beaver Dam meeting, he stood up to say that he was forever finished with all religious groups that divided Christian people from each other. From then on, he said that he would be a part of God's church or the church of God (laughs) and no other. Warner asked that group that day if anyone else agreed with him. Five people in that meeting said they agreed. A few weeks later, he spoke these same words in Carson City, Michigan. And out of these two meetings... The Church of God movement was born. Early Church of God people were very determined not to be organized like the churches of their day. Some of you who have grown up in the church, you've heard then that they were called come-outers. You've heard that term before? They were called come-outers. They would come out of sectarian churches, churches that divided, churches that required you to do a bunch of things, a bunch of man-made rules in order to be a part of their church. And they came out of that. And to this day, the Church of God holds tight that they're not so much a denomination. The word denomination can convey at that time, the word Denomination conveyed uh, division, uh, separatism, uh, things that you had to do to be a part of the church. And so we have referred to ourselves as a movement. And the early Church of God pioneers declared and believed the same thing that Peter declared 
that anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, anyone who places their faith, their hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, they are a part of the church. They are a part of the true church of God. No other requirement is needed. Praise God. Praise God. I've often had people down through the years come up to me in various churches that I've been in, and especially being a senior pastor, and they'll say, hey, there's just something here. I just believe this is where God wants me. I've come from another church. Uh, do I need to call the church and have them transfer my membership to this church? And no. All you need to know and all we need to know is have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? You're in. You're in the church. You're a part of God's glorious church. Listen, um, those that are within the church of God, we are not the only ones who are part of God's church. We do not claim to be the one true church. Uh, there, and there are some long-time Church of God people, old-school Church of God people, that I would like to say, look, before DS1 or ever he lived, God's church was alive and well. We don't have a corner on the market, <laughs> All right. but we are a part of God's overall church, one large church. We extend our, extend our hand of fellowship to every blood-washed one, to be joined together as one, one large church of God. Listen, it does not matter so much what the sign over the door of the church says. It does not matter how many Church of God generations that you come from. It does not matter how much money that you've given to the church. It does not matter uh, what your ancestors have done the church. It doesn't matter how good of a person you are in the church. It doesn't matter how much you serve in the church. Oh, listen, it does not matter if somewhere in your church or in the church is a gold plaque that talks about how your father, your mother, your grandfather did this or did that. The only thing that matters is have you made Jesus personal? Have you made Him Lord and Savior of your life? If you have, you're a part of the church. God's glorious church. Mm. Membership in this church. It's not recorded in the fallible hands of humans. Luke, Revelation says this. Your membership, your names are written in heaven. In the book of life. This morning as I close, I ask you, have you made Jesus personal? Mandy, come on up. Don't know what song you've chosen. We've talked about a lot of things, but I go back to the passage. I believe Jesus is looking at someone today as he looked at the twelve, and he's saying to someone, but who do you say that I am? I don't know. I'm looking at a lot of familiar faces, but faces on Sunday morning can sometimes be deceiving. Where are you at? You want to be a part of the church that Jesus established that day? Would you bow your heads, please?